Hi everyone, my name is Marcus Einson. Welcome to the NG Podcast, where we discuss a wide range of subjects, all of which are related to artificial nutrition and patient safety. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please give us a like, a subscribe, and leave a comment. Here we go. My guest today on this episode continues our theme of trying to help healthcare professionals better understand the complete stories of people who use artificial nutrition in the hope that this helps improve insights and therefore care. Today, I'm joined by Caitlin Clark, who is a recently qualified registered dietitian who I contacted when she shared her story in October 2021 on social media about the things she'd learned and experienced while supporting her father, who she cares for uh, through and after his rig insertion. Caitlin, welcome to the NG podcast and thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Hi Marcus and thank you for having me on, it's been a great opportunity. Well, you know, I know we've tried a little bit, we've tried a few times to actually make this happen, so I'm really pleased we are. Um, Before we start, we should make it clear right at the outset of the discussion that you explained to your dad what we were going to talk about and he agreed to let you share your story, which is also his story. Um, Yeah. um, So to give people a little bit of context um, for the focus of the discussion, can you share a little background information so that listeners understand you and your dad's journey to date? Yeah, so um, yeah, so my dad, Paddy, he's 64 and he's living with a condition called motor neuron disease or MND. Um, which is also called sometimes called ALS. Um, for people that have never heard of MND before, it's a neurodegenerative condition um, where the motor neurons that are in the brain and the spinal cord that kind of coordinate motor activity and the muscles and movement stop working properly. And the result of this is it causes kind of muscle weakness and wasting throughout the body. And that kind of has, has a knock-on effect on things like kind of breathing, walking, speaking, it makes these things much harder, things like swallowing and stuff as well. Um, and eventually these become impossible. Um, so I think dad started showing symptoms of the condition maybe about five or six years ago when his left foot dropped down and he thought that because the muscles and it kind of weakened. Um, and from there it's kind of progressed and it started affecting his legs and his um, speaking and his swallowing um, just as kind of things have gone on with time. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a long time for us to kind of get a diagnosis though and um, just because neurodegenerative conditions are firstly hard to diagnose but also COVID kind of delayed it quite a bit um, just because all his reviews were over the telephone and as much as his speech was impaired it was hard when you're not seeing him walking and moving to see any yeah. kind of progression but we finally got um, we finally got a diagnosis in May last year um, which has helped us kind of get the support that we've needed for him which is great mm-hmm. Um so with MND, there's not really a cure for the condition um, it's, and it's life limiting. So a lot of the treatments that people get um, for the condition are mainly just managing symptoms and trying to keep people as well as possible for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And nutrition often plays a massive role in this with MND because it's um, firstly, people with MND are very likely to get, I think it's like 70 to 80% of people with MND are likely to get dysphagia which is when um, their swallow um, becomes, swallowing becomes harder and more laborious um, as the muscles there weaken and it can make it unsafe and make people more likely to aspirate food. Mm-hmm. 
And the problem with this as well is the kind of texture modification that you do to um, help manage the dysphagia also puts people at risk of nutrition and malnutrition and dehydration on top of the dysphagia putting people at increased risk of nutrition and dehydration as well. Um, But we also know with MND that um, that, like loss of fat-free mass, the loss of muscle mass, um, weight loss and malnutrition um, have a negative impact on kind of survival. Um, so really dietetics is very involved from the get-go um, yeah. at the point of diagnosis or sometimes even before with people who have suspected motor neuron disease um, because it plays, uh, because what we want to do is we want to keep the weight nice and steady because um, that keeps everything working as well as possible and keeps people living for as long as possible. So I think in September last year, um, we had a chat one kind of the ways that we kind of manage nutrition with motor neuron disease with dietitians is a lot of it is kind of we start off with kind of food first and just trying to kind of like maximize the calories and protein and fluids that they're getting through food and then we move to things like nutrition supports and supplement drinks and stuff but quite often what is rec- um, what is used in people with MND is um, they quite often get gastrostomy treated. And this is put in, what, what they do is they tend to place them early on when the person is as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. And then at a later date, so that when they need it at a later date, when swallowing becomes a lot harder, it's not safe for them to manage food orally anymore, or it's just really tiresome. You could just start using that as and when, um, just while their lung function is at the best, before yeah. the kind of disease starts to affect their lungs. Yeah. So in September last year, um, my dad had a chat with kind of like the MND nurse and the dietitian and myself and dad was already starting to show signs of he's had dysphagia since for maybe about a year at that point mm-hmm. um, but he was managing to kind of eat enough but yeah. what he was struggling with was kind of he was showing signs of dehydration and he wasn't drinking enough yeah. so we thought at that point um, it would be a good idea to get the gastrostomy fitted just to kind of support him with fluids and um, so we went ahead and done that in September um, and it all went really well and off the back of that I felt like I just learned so much from the situation I felt like I I felt like I just learned so much and that could really be applied to the people that I'm looking after as a dietitian and it gave me a completely new perspective of what it's like to have a gastrostomy tube um, and yeah so I kind of took to Twitter and just kind of wrote about some of the things I'd learned and here I am. So, yeah, 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 and and uh, yeah, and that, and that's what I picked up, and I was really fascinated by it. And I, I think just just from what you've said there, um, I, I suppose when we talked about doing the podcast, we talked about you know the things that you learned through the process, but also what you've talked about is in effect the things you already knew, and how that probably helped you and your dad approach it. Um, but I guess that might, that might've been harder in some terms because you knew what was potentially coming. Um, but, but I, you know, I think when I saw your, your Twitter feed, I thought this is going to be really interesting for us to be able to expand a bit on the thread. Um, yeah. So, so you know, in that thread, you talk very succinctly about the things you'd experienced and learned through supporting your dad. And, and one of the things you mentioned was that having a feeding tube place can be scary and overwhelming. Um, 
but you didn't relate this to the procedure itself. You related it more to the loss of independence and perception of disease progression. Can you tell me a little bit about that and about how perhaps you think healthcare professionals can recognise this and how they can give support? Yeah, so I think before dad went into the hospital, um, there was kind of my dad um, before, he, like before he was too unwell to work, he always did kind of like labour jobs, very manual work. So he didn't really have a lot of understanding of kind of medicine. He, he'd never worked for the NHS or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So all of this has been very alien to him. And it's been a lot of kind of me kind of guiding him and navigating him through that and supporting him to make these decisions as someone who kind of has a bit more of an idea about what's going on. Um, So, and dad is not a fan of doctors. He doesn't like hospitals. So um, when he was going in for the operation, there was that initial kind of fear of kind of going into the hospital, the stress of getting to the hospital and having kind of, you know, it's a minor surgery, like getting the kind of tube fitted. There was kind of like a lot of anxiety about that, but, I think in my head I thought oh yeah it's just because he's going into the hospital and once it's there and done and dusted he'll be fine but actually what we found was actually kind of the kind of nerves and that feeling of overwhelm actually lingered for a bit longer than that and actually came to head after he'd had the tube fitted and I think what it was was um dad was very like dad is a very independent person and Mm -hmm. at this point dad has a very slow progressing form of the disease um so at the point of going into the hospital, we were getting it put in kind of almost preemptively. Um, but because dad's disease kind of happens quite slowly, like things change very gradually for him. I think having the tube there and fitted and kind of sticking at his stomach was a bit of a kind of reality of that was kind of the first shock to both of us of this is where this is going to go at some point. And that idea that, oh my goodness, this device is going to be with him probably for the rest of his life. Yeah. And also that he's going to have to rely on it at some point for kind of food and nutrition and mm-hmm. um, so I think that was a big fright for him about kind of this is what's going to happen next even though he wasn't at that stage yet at all yeah. and I think that was yeah. quite emotional for him yeah. and it was quite a landmark in his journey with living with the disease as well and yeah. um, so I think it was quite hard for him to kind of adjust to that and the fact that at some point he's not going to be able to just kind of like put his own cereal in his mouth and carry on eating yeah um and I think from that that made me realize that as a professional it's really important to make space for that in a consultation with someone and one of the things that I really appreciated when he was in the hospital was when I went in to help him with the tube training with the nutritionist and dad got quite upset and was just like this is horrible I just want to stop and just he was getting quite tearful um and the nutritionist was just like, yeah, sure, okay, that's completely fine. And she just kind of like let him be upset and let him find it difficult and was like, this is totally normal. And what she did was she was just like, this is clearly too much. And she just gave us the information that we needed um, and kind of the skills that we needed. I think it helped that I'd already kind of had a vague idea what was going on. We just kind of like wrapped it up, gave us what we needed and we were like, anything else can be covered at a later date. And um, so we got signed off and went home and her response to him being upset made the situation a lot better. Like we could have just carried on and cracked on and just kind of got everything done and dusted and covered. But actually yeah. her empathy and her understanding of that made a difficult experience with dad just a little bit better. 
and it was something that I would want to emulate in my own patients mm. if I'm kind of like helping them on that journey after getting a gastrostomy fitted. Yeah. I think as well, like as a dietitian, you kind of go in after someone's had a tube fitted and you're kind of like, oh, how are you feeling? Like, how's the pain? How's like, how's the pain? How are, how are you feeling like in yourself? Are you tired? I actually make a space to be like, how are you feeling about having the tube in? Yeah. And how, how does this feel for you? And what thoughts have come up and stuff is also important because it is a big thing to adjust to. Yeah. And it's actually, yeah, it's quite monumental for people. And I think um, like feeding tubes are something that we see every day as dietitians and we're kind of like desensitized to them. But actually for someone that's never seen one before, like they're completely like, they must be terrifying. And if you've got little to no knowledge of them or what to expect, like my dad had a lot of misconceptions about what the tube meant. Um, as well going in and we had to work through that and I also think as dietitians as well um, sometimes it's very easy to kind of just say hey the tube's there now we may as well use it and kind of in the context of my dad and in some cases that's not necessarily what's best for the person um, and in scenarios where it's kind of safer to um, it might actually be worth kind of giving the person a little bit of time to adjust yeah. and that's kind of what we did with my dad yeah. Um because at that point when he was there and he got upset after seeing the nurse, I was just a bit like, look, I knew that kind of starting to immediately put a supplement down that tube wasn't going to help him. That was going to yeah, make yeah. the situation worse. So what I kind of said to him was like, look, we don't even need to use the tube at the moment. When you get home, we can think about it. But let's just now just put, all we need to do is put a flush through it once a day yeah. and then we can go from there. And what I actually found was um, when he was home and a lot more settled and we were just doing that flush, that actually gave him the time to adjust to having the tube there. Yeah. And after that, when once we kind of got settled into a routine and we started to build it up a bit more and he was much more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because he was so independent and one of the big things that we chatted to at the point when dad started to get unwell was that we wanted to keep him as independent as possible for as long as possible because that yeah. too is as a person. And I think that was another reason why the tube was hard for him to adjust to and was hard yeah. for him to take in. One of the things we did was as soon as he was home was I kind of gave him as much control over looking after the tube as possible as soon as we could. Yeah. Like day one, I was just kind of giving him wipes and he was cleaning around the site himself, applying any creams that he wanted to. Um, and I think that helped him counteract that kind of, that shock of the tube being yeah. kind of this loss of independence because it was like, okay, that's there now, but look at all these things that you can still do. Yeah. and we're not there yet and that yeah. kind of helped reinforce that for him yeah. um, and it got to the point yeah so he does his own cleaning and rotation and now like at this point down the line that pretty much does his entire like flushes himself all I do is like boil the water for him yeah. and come in with the water I screw the syringe on and pour the water down and he does everything else himself I'm literally yeah. just his glamorous assistant now yeah, yeah. so I think having those conversations about kind of building things up um like having that conversation about kind of not just going in full guns blazing with um, yeah, yeah. kind of flushes and stuff and just kind of taking things at a steady pace where you can and having that conversation with patients can be more patient-focused, more yeah. patient-centred and, and can really make a difference to kind of that kind of initial stage where things are quite scary and overwhelming. Okay, so, I mean, and you know, it's really good to hear that, you know, the nutritionist did actually adjust that session 
um, with your dad to to make it uh, easier. Um, but yeah, I think that insight that you just talked about around um, when someone's had a, a procedure, it's almost kind of done. We'll move on to the next step. Whereas actually, clearly, in your dad's case, he was still struggling with the fact that it was happening. Um, it wasn't a, the procedure is finished, I can move on. He, he still needed some adjustment there uh, and a bit of space. So, you know, I think that's a really interesting insight. Um, one thing you also mentioned uh, in the, um, when, you, when you put the uh, uh, your message on um, social media, and I'm going to quote you, if I may, was following the insertion, the patient's just had surgery, is on strong painkillers and will be drowsy from the anaesthetic for a few days. Keep the consultation short and sweet and stick to the key points. Write things down to help them and remember to relay the information to the next of kin and carers. Can you expand a little on that and perhaps talk about anything you've changed in the way you would communicate with patients post-op as a result? I know you just sort of touched on that, but you know, maybe expand a little bit more on what's clearly a really important point in someone's recovery. Yeah, so this kind of came off the back of me going to visit my dad after he'd just had the tube placed. Um, so I kind of went up to the hospital and he was just, um, went to visit him and he was just absolutely knackered. This is kind of like he'd had it done earlier that day and I was just sort of going there for like moral support. Um, and I kind of went in and it became really aware to me fairly quickly that because it was my own dad and I know him really well and I know his baseline, he was absolutely knackered and so drowsy and like just not himself at all from like the medication. Yeah. Um, so I think we just sat and we were just watching something on the telly. I don't think we really even spoke that much. We were just watching some garden show on BBC Two. And I kind of was asking, I was like, oh, how are you feeling? Like a little bit. And he was like, yeah, fine. I was like, oh, the dietitian came to see you. And he was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, what was she saying? He couldn't remember a single thing. Um, so I was like, oh. So he had no idea what they'd actually chatted about at the time. And I think at the time he'd actually had, had the oxygen mask on and he was still kind of coming around for the anaesthetic. And that kind of made me realise, like, when you're seeing a patient, how yeah that kind of made me realize that like when you're kind of like in that kind of professional hat you can go in and see a patient and you could give them all the information in the world but when they've just kind of had an operation and they're knackered they probably don't want to chat to you probably just want to sleep and at that point I think it's just important just to kind of give them what they need to know at that stage and then anything else can be gone over before they go home it can be gone over another time because if you give them that information now then they're just you're just going to be repeating yourself in like a couple of days time. Yeah. yeah. And it's really, and some of that information could be quite important. Yeah. Um, and it can be realized as well, like just how important it is to give people written information because dad on the day he was discharged, he still wasn't at like, he still wasn't a hundred percent and like, yeah, he still wasn't a hundred percent. So having that information there to refer back to, even if he remembers bits of it, but having that to refer back to um, is really important mm. um, for people after kind of having something like this. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important as well to kind of make sure where you can, 
that if there's going to be other people involved in care for the tube, giving that information to them as well, whether that be on yeah. the phone and just getting everyone involved just so that people feel supported and confident enough to go home with the tube. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I realised that and as well. Um, because of the pain that he was in. Another thing that I kind of remember to note was um, because he was like in so much pain, it really hurt him to laugh. So I realised after that as well, I was like, if I'm going in to see a true patient just after they've had it fitted, best not to be like cracking out all the jokes to try and cheer them yeah. up. Just just let them sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's, you know, it's little things like that, isn't it? That knowing his... Um, because you you what you usually want to go in and, and you want to cheer the patients up and you know if you've had a bit of a crack with them before the op is just remembering it that they're, they're not going to enjoy the laughing very much mm-hmm. um yeah it's probably be pleasant rather than funny yeah like there's time to crack jokes you can crack jokes from that to getting discharged like leave it for the first couple of days <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you you just we just sort of talked about um you know when your dad first came home um our healthcare systems are often quite divided between acute and community uh, but you've seen both parts in relation to tube feeding up close and personal in a way that healthcare professionals often don't get to do um what were the toughest parts for you and how do you think you could have been prepared better I'd say the toughest part of it was probably when dad first came home um, because you just kind of, if you think about it without even considering the kind of like the tube side of things, you've just got this person who's just came out of hospital. Yeah. They're absolutely knackered. They've just had like a minor operation, like kind of getting that tube fitted. They're kind of knackered and sore and tired. So you're just kind of focusing on them and getting them settled, getting them home and just kind of keeping them as comfortable as possible and making sure they're getting enough rest. And yeah. dad's appetite wasn't great as well when he first came back, which was to be expected. So I was kind of worrying about kind of like, is he okay? Is he using medication? Um, like, is he eating enough? Like, and just trying to kind of get whatever we could into him. Um, yeah, for those kind of first couple of days. Um, so actually, even without thinking about the fact that this person has like, like the whole tube side of it and kind of thinking oh my goodness I have this person who has a new tube to kind of yeah you're just so focused on trying to get them to kind of rest and kind of relax and make them comfortable as possible and at day and night and when it's kind of like the appetite's poor and it hurts to eat you're also thinking about that and kind of worrying about that side of things that you're not even thinking about the tube so when you kind of add that on and trying to on top of trying to support them the best you can um even as someone who is kind of like a graduate dietitian and had experienced this kind of like gastrostomy tubes, I found it overwhelming. Like like looking after people with a gastrostomy tube and as a dietitian and actually having one in front of you when someone's just home and getting one fitted are yeah. two completely different things. Yeah. And you could argue that as a like as a dietitian, I'm probably one of the most prepared people in the world to be in that situation. Yeah. Um, alongside kind of nurses and probably more more senior dietitians who've been in the game for a lot longer than I have. Um but yeah, like even that kind of first day when it's kind of like it's all down to you and you're kind of trying to look after this and the healing wound with stitches and stuff, you are just a bit like, Am I doing this right? There's a lot of second guessing, 
you're like oh what am I going to do if this happens or am I hurting them or yeah there's like a lot of things there's a lot of second guessing and there's a lot of probably nerves around looking after it so I think that was the hardest point was that point of kind of getting him home and him being not well and also getting a grip of what I was doing with the tube and also supporting him with that as well yeah um that was probably the hardest bit but I would say yeah I think it's a situation that you can't really prepare yourself for like you never know what's going to happen until you're there like I could have I could have done a hundred things before he went in but you know you just have to see how they are and just kind of take things as they come yeah and just kind of roll with it I guess yeah and kind of with regards to like the impact that the tube had on him I think it did kind of surprise me how long he was I was surprised at the impact that it had on him um just the kind of effect that it had for him like you know it's surgery you know that it's going to affect the person like they're going to be tired afterwards and they're probably not going to be very hungry and they're going to be like they're going to sleep a lot and just as the body kind of works over time to try and repair itself but I think what I had kind of not really thought about was the fact that a lot of people who have are getting gastrostomy tubes fitted tend to be getting it because they have an underlying condition um, regardless of what that is it has an impact mm. on their ability to eat and their kind of energy levels in their function which is meaning that they need the tube yeah. um, so, for, so for my dad he already has this kind of like medical condition that makes him tired because of the extra like the extra energy that you use to eat and to walk and to breathe and um, so actually what we found was when he had his usual levels of kind of MND tiredness yeah. And then after that, when he got the tube fitted, that added to that, like that kind of like, it was like a double whammy and he was actually yeah. kind of out the game for a good few weeks. Not out the game, but he was pretty knackered for a good yeah, few yeah. weeks afterwards. Yeah. And what we actually saw as well was that he had like a little bit of a dip in his functionality and he stopped being able to get up out of a chair on his own. Um, now he has like a riser recliner, so it's fine. Um, yeah. But what we found was that that um, he never fully recovered from, yeah. um, which I think is quite common in M&D when people do kind of, when they get infections or kind of something put stress yeah. in the body is that they do, then like the condition gets a little bit worse. Um, but when I kind of had a chat with dad about it, I was like, do you regret getting the tube because of that? He was always saying, you know, like he feels like the benefits of having the tube in now and the effect that's having on his hydration and how much better he's feeling now he's getting enough fluids yeah. and the long-term effects of that, he thinks that it was definitely worth getting the tube fitted. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, I mean, it's good that he recognizes that he feels better because he's getting the hydration he needs. But I think two things from, from what you, you just said, um, one, um, I guess it makes you appreciate how, um, how independent healthcare professionals that work in the community have to be. Um, Cause if you work in a hospital, you've got all the backup and everything and there's always somebody to ask, but um, you know, in the community, you, you're often in the, I guess in the situation you were in on your, on your own and you're having to, you know, use your skills, but adapt a lot. Um, but also quite often, I think people think of a gastrostomy as, you know, quite a minor procedure and, and do you know, it's, it, it's just not, uh, you know, there is um, mortality and morbidity associated with it. And 
it's a big op and and i guess maybe as a, as healthcare professionals we we sometimes appreciate that but perhaps um the carers and the family of people who have a gastrostomy would think oh well it's only a a little hole in the stomach and there's a tube no biggie but clearly like you said when people have a a concomitant medical condition the the very fact of going through that procedure can make a big impact so i think those are really interesting insights um from you and your dad going through it but it is good that he recognizes a benefit because let's face it, it would be awful if he couldn't um yeah um one of the previous guests that we had, Don, who is a pint member, talked about the issues he had with dexterity and strength when he was dealing with enteral feeding equipment. You also mentioned this. Um, did the complexity and mechanics of home enteral feeding surprise you in any way? Yeah, I think I listened to part of that um, episode. I found it so interesting, like, yeah, so I think I listened to part of that episode and what he was managing was like absolutely amazing. Um, so what I found actually was when dad first kind of came home and we were kind of left our own devices as the truth was I like when I was on placement, I'd kind of had the, um, like as a student, I'd had the privilege of spending some time with the nutrition nurses, like fiddling with the tubes and doing tube training. And so it was kind of almost like a refresher course when I did go and do it with dad. But when he came home, and he kind of like when the tube was first placed, I found it really, really difficult to like unscrew the Y port. Like they were really, really stiff and they yeah. were very, very finicky because they were like attached to the other side of the tube. So I really struggled to get them off and it took a lot of my strength to do that. And I think on top of that, there was um, the issue that dad still had his stitches in. So I was trying to be really careful and not like pull his stitches and stuff. So I actually had a really hard time getting them off. And I think it just got to the point where I was still struggling with it. I don't think I ever actually kind of like got particularly good at it. I think it just uh-huh. got to the point dad started feeling a lot better and was just like fed up of watching me fiddle with it. So he ended up just like doing it himself. <laughs> Give it um, to me. <laughs> yeah, I was probably like tugging it or something. I felt really bad. <laughs> yeah, so it was just a bit of a fast, to be honest. Um, so what I, I think that kind of made me realise like, you know, if I'm a young woman who's not got kind of like any issues with things like that and I'm struggling to get them off how is like a patient or a caregiver who's got like poor dexterity or arthritis or like a tremor how are they going to manage to get it off and it made me aware that it's really important to look at that and mm-hmm. um, like as a multidisciplinary team and um, like alongside the nurses and stuff before they go home yeah and so that you can get things put in place to make their life easier if they need it or to give them the support with the tube that they need so they don't go home and they are just kind of like stuck and be like, I have this tube and I literally can't open it. Yeah. And there's always yeah. like numbers to call and there's always support there. But, you know, like just, it was just another thing to kind of think about with people just to make sure that the kind of transition home is as smooth as possible and they feel as supported as possible. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think um, that episode with Don. I thought it was amazing. I could have talked to him for absolutely hours. But yeah, it's kind of, it makes you think, well, I'll assess the patient and then order something from Don uh, to help (laughs) them do certain bits. Um, I I did say to him that he should should get into uh, contact with some uh, enteral feeding 
device manufacturers and get them to make some of his widgets, uh, <laughs> you know, his universal tools and stuff. But I think it is really interesting. Um, you know, I've worked in uh, different aspects of enteral feeding for a number of years. And, um, you know, I can st still remember kind of with NG tubes, you know, the, the caps are sometimes really quite hard to get off, certainly the first time you get it off. Uh, and sometimes with feed through them, they get a bit sticky and you, you kind of think, well, if somebody has to do this themselves, uh, one, it's harder uh, because, you know, you're, you're, it's up close and personal and uh, you're not in the best position to do it. But also sometimes it's just quite difficult. Things are stiff so, and, and fiddly, like you said. Um, so um, a few months have elapsed since that post and you might have had time to reflect um, a bit further um, on everything you learned when your dad moved to enteral feeding. What is the thing or the things you wish you'd been told the most at the outset? Um, yeah, so it's been about six months now, and dad's thankfully still only using the tube for cut up fluid. Um, so he's just getting like two flushes a day, so... Um, which is great. Um, but I don't think there's anything that I really felt like I'd wish that I'd been told. But if I was chatting to myself, who is in that position at like the start of October with kind of like my dad just home in this kind of new past, like not past, like like this new thing to try and like get my head around and manage. Um, probably one of the things that I want to tell myself is that at first it does seem really like confusing and weird and it does feel a bit like oh my goodness what's going on but it does settle and after a while you do just get used to it and it becomes just part of your routine like yeah. it's just stuff that you do kind of like it's just one of the things like after lunch you just kind of like get on with and then yeah, after yeah. dinner you do the same and it does just join in with the kind of like the general like motions and rhythms of life and it doesn't feel like a big deal anymore yeah and I think with the kind of, I think I had a lot of, not anxiety at that point, but I was quite nervous about kind of things going wrong and stuff. But actually, what if I was, when those things do arise, you just kind of, you just learn as you go with a lot of the stuff with the feed, um, with the tube. Um, like when the kind of bolus sticks, you just kind of fiddle with it and you find a way that works yeah. for for things to move um, and yeah you just kind of work it out as you go and you don't need to have all the answers to start off like you don't need to know how to troubleshoot absolutely everything like you will just find your own little way of dealing with things and it does just become part of like normal life yeah um, and we ended up getting some support so we have the nurses in um, once a week to help with the kind of water changing the balloon water and yeah. also they keep an eye on my dad's skin and um, which is really helpful I think as a carer, it's very easy for you to kind of say yes to everything and be like, yeah, I can do that. And especially with the tube, I was like, yeah, you know, like I'm a dietitian, I can deal with it all. <laughs> I actually, the a dietitian at the time was like, yeah, no, like let the district nurses come in and help you with this. Yeah. And I am so glad that she did say that and she did make me kind of like give some of the responsibility or share the responsibility with someone else yeah. because it does just take a bit of the pressure off you. And yeah. I think as advice for like other carers out there or people with tubes like if you're getting offered help 
you might not think that you need it right now but it does make a big difference and every little thing helps and just not having that pressure of having to think like look at the skin and try and work out if it's like over granulated or that's just a rash or what is going on with that it does just kind of take a bit of the weight off me it helps me focus on other things with regards to my dad's care um I think as well, he listens to the nurses much more than he listens to me. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be like, you need to put cream on that. He won't listen. But like, if a nurse says it, he's like, yeah, okay, the cream is yeah. straight on. But yeah, so I think from, from a kind of supportive perspective, um, just yeah, if you're getting offered help, just try and take it as much as your pride maybe makes you not want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think the only thing that I really wish that I'd kind of known a little bit about was um, Dad had a bit of blood after the tube was fitted. Um, and the kind of stitches were still in and stuff and I didn't know if that was kind of normal or not so a bit more having a bit more of an idea of like what to expect those couple of days after the tube is fitted would have been helpful just to know if it's healing properly or not and kind of I knew the kind of warning signs to look out for like there's pus coming out of it when you see someone but yeah that was kind of like a kind of no man's land where I'd kind of seen or on placement, I'd kind of seen like, you know, people before the tube and then when the tube was just fitted and they were still in the hospital and I'd seen people afterwards who had had a tube for a while. But that middle ground in between, I yeah. hadn't seen at all. So I didn't really know yeah. what to expect. Yeah. Um, okay. But thankfully, it was all fine. Like, we've not had any problems with the tube at all, which has been, which we're very, very lucky in that respect. So, yeah, that's, yeah. Br- that's brilliant. So, I, and I think, um, I think that piece of advice of, if someone offers you help, take it um, rather than kind of going, no, no, it, people don't want to bother healthcare professionals and they think they're just going to do it all. And then you feel, you know, uh, it's very easy, I guess, to feel a bit lost. So yeah, take all the help you can get to start off with. You can always, um, you can always push it down uh, at a later date, but I, I guess also having somebody else to look at something and say, yes, you're right. Um, um, it is good and also somebody to say get some cream on that and have them take some notice is good as well uh, listen yeah. it, it's been a, a real pleasure having having you on uh, on the ng podcast uh, uh, you know it's definitely been worth the wait uh, and um you know and i guess it's good that we're a little bit you're a little bit further down the line um with with your your dad's uh recovery and coming to terms with the, the the gastrostomy so you have even more insights now than you did when you first wrote that post so i just want to thank you for taking the time and thank you dad for agreeing to let us talk about his story as well as yours um and um you know good luck um in your um new career um as a, as a dietitian so listen uh, thank you very much for your time and um you know like i said good luck with your career and, and please wish your dad uh, all our best um you know as as um uh, with his recovery uh, and and ongoing treatment thank you so much for having me on um yeah it's been a great opportunity and to be honest dad um dad's absolutely chuffed that we're sharing his story um okay. I, was, I wasn't really sure how he'd feel about like me kind of like speaking about it and stuff and I did double check with him but no the fact that he's kind of like we're able to raise awareness and kind of help other people and improve care for people following gastrostomy is yeah it's something that he's really happy about and really enthusiastic about so thank you for giving me giving us the chance to come on and chat yeah. about it cool well that's great to hear and um 
I'm going to look forward to his feedback on um, <laughs> on what what we put down. It, it'll be you that gets the hard time, not me. So, uh, yeah, good, <laughs> good luck with that. Thank you.